Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is by Mike Kerrigan, titled, Generation X Did Summer Vacation Right? Then Dave Sebastian has an article, The Cast Iron Skillet Wars, Should You Wash the Pan? Susan Pinker wrote, Prenatal Stress May Make Children More Verbal. Then an article by Lawrence Krauss, A Scientist's Sexuality Shouldn't Matter. And we'll follow that up with an article by Jan Yu, Knees are our body's weakest link. So all these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first one, Generation X Did Summer Vacation Right? As the school year ends, parents will feel pressured to load summer activities onto the pristine schedules of their early adolescent children. It might be the perfect time to recall the mantra of my 1980s childhood. You have everything you need. Generation X, lurking between the more demographically significant boomer and Generation Z cohorts, isn't consulted much. But here it's a loss, since doing more with less has always been our stock in trade. This is how I remember every summer day during my coming-of-age years. Underplanned and overenjoyed, my friends and I roamed from neighborhood to neighborhood like gallant knights atop trusty two-wheeled steeds. Most of us latchkey kids, we thrived under rules of engagement born of the weekday absence of parents, babysitters, camp counselors, and adult supervision generally. Our rule in backyard football, Losers Walk, exemplified the spirit. Under this regime, the team that scored a touchdown got to stay in the end zone where they just found pay dirt. The other side hoofed it to the opposite end zone to receive kickoff. The loser's walk, which felt longer than it was, was marked by some carping over who'd blown coverage. Mostly, though, you talked about necessary tweaks to the defensive scheme. Our priorities were clear. Forget what bad has happened. What is the workaround? In the driveway, make it, take it, ruled the realm of half-court basketball. This meant you retained possession as long as your team kept scoring. The precept encouraged teamwork and accountability, both of which made us better players. An invitation indoors for a drink was nice, but hardly necessary when every house had a perfectly good garden hose attached to it. Some of the most Thirst-quenching gulps in my life happened not at a fancy beach resort in adulthood, but third in the troll line in Tommy's sun-baked backyard. When beverage bidding included a snack, a dilemma occasionally presented itself. Two friendly foragers sometimes scavenged enough grub for only one bologna sandwich. Here, tear and share the Solomonic rule by which one person split the sandwich while the other chose the half he wanted, governed. 
while my younger brother, Jack, was convinced he could make self-advantageous cuts invisible to the untrained eye, the rule generally produced equitable results. All this suburban frontier justice from device-free kids simply left to their own devices. Adolescents in my neighborhood still play basketball in their driveways. Fewer play backyard football, and nobody, it seems, drinks from the garden hose. It might be time for my generation to get involved. Jack can prepare the sandwiches. And now the cast iron skillet wars. Should you wash the pan? Cast iron cookware has recently seen a resurgence. That means a rise in one of the most sizzling household debates around, how should you wash that pan? Some people have a clear answer. You shouldn't. Cast iron aficionados shudder at the thought of letting soap near their pans. They will leave their beloved skillets unwashed for years, even decades, and will talk at length about the unique flavor that creates. The only thing they hate more than soap is dishwashers. Frankis Oakley, who grew up in Can and now lives in Rayford, North Carolina, is one of those who shuns soap when cleaning her pan, replacing it with good old-fashioned elbow grease. Oakley sometimes has to scrape her pan for 10 minutes to get it clean, particularly after cooking tabaka, a pan-fried chicken dish popular in Central Asia and Eastern Europe. It's an additional unnecessary step, Oakley, 38 years old, said of adding soap. There's just one snag. Oakley said her husband, Robert, remains a firm believer in soap, although she added that he is also fairly likely to drop a pan in the sink and leave washing for later. Robert Oakley didn't dispute that claim, but said he only uses soap when there is an overabundance of buildup in the pan. Pandri, who lives in Ho Chi Minh City, says he has used soap on a skillet just once during his seven years of cast iron cooking. For some reason, the smell of soap kind of sticks to the cast iron a little bit, he said. Tree, 26, said he can spend as long as 45 minutes scrubbing his pan and layering it with salt. Oakley and Tree are among the cast iron fans who will go the extra length to keep their pans away from the combination of soap and water. Others have been trying to figure out whether to do the same, following an increase in cast iron sales during the early part of the pandemic. But is washing a pan with soap really so bad? The Lodge Museum of Cast Iron in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, put that question to visitors. The museum, which includes a 14,360-pound cast-iron skillet big enough to fry roughly 650 eggs, has given visitors a chance to vote for soap or no soap since opening last October. Votes are cast with poker chip. The no-soap fans have generally won, but there is reason to believe they have used dirty tricks. There have been days when the poker chips far exceeded the admissions that we had, said Shannon Nelms, the museum's manager. Stephen Muscarella, co-founder of Pan Maker Field, said he finds it impossible to convince the no-soap camp. They're the iconoclasts. 
It's really getting into the belief like a religion almost for people, he added. The exact answer to the burning question of whether you should wash a cast iron pan is, it depends. Much of the stigma about cleaning cast iron pans goes back years, when soaps contained lye, which can strip off seasoning. People forget that over time we're not using the same products that they used back then, said Ashley Jones, who has written books about cast iron cookware. Some homemade soaps today still contain lye, Jones cautioned. The official line from manufacturers suggests there is no reason for pandemonium. Both Lage Cast Iron, the company that operates the museum, and Field have told customers a small amount of soap is no problem. Cast Iron traces its history thousands of years ago to the Iron Age, and the Chinese began regularly producing iron castings as early as 800 B.C., said Doro Stefanescu, Emeritus Professor of Metallurgy and Material Science at the University of Alabama and The Ohio State University. It's a big no-no to use detergents on the cast iron pan, he said, and he has advised Loge on product research. He owns multiple cast iron skillets, including one that has been in his collection for more than 20 years. It has never touched soap. Stefanescu's preferred cleaning method after cooking something simple, like french fries, is to spray the pan with hot water until the oil comes off and dry it with a paper towel. That wouldn't work right away with food-like cake, which can stick to the surface. Stefanescu, 80, said in the case he leaves water in the pan overnight, another method that is at odds with the pan maker's recommendation. The debate about how to clean pans doesn't go quite as far back as the Iron Age, said Michael Pennington, a resident of Caldwell, Idaho. They didn't do any of that fancy stuff to it, he said, of past civilizations. He keeps his cleaning regimen simple. Scrape out the food, add ditch soap, scrub the skillet, let it dry. A lot of people's methods are too complicated especially new people that hear all these different stories and conflicting information, said Pennington, who owns about 60 cast iron items. Soap doesn't do anything except clean, he added. Cast iron cookware can be an heirloom, handed down from generation to generation. It's a piece of history you can hold in your hands, said Cheryl Maderos, 60, of Modesto, California. It is also a piece of history she sometimes finds in the sink, waiting for her attention when she visits her daughters. I do get mad at my girls because I gifted them a couple of really nice cast irons, and I'll come over and go, Really? You didn't clean your pan? she said. And now Susan Pinker's prenatal stress may make children more verbal. Cortisol floods your bloodstream every time you feel stressed out. The biochemical messenger heralds an incipient attack, real or imagined, and instructs your body to gird itself for danger. But the hormone can have contradictory effects. It plays the hero or anti-hero depending on the context. Doctors prescribe it to reduce inflammation and tamp down the immune system when it goes haywire, for example. 
but cortisol released during periods of extended psychological stress can also damage your heart and kickstart a major depression. Cortisol has a bad reputation, said Anga Fenger Dreyer, a physician and research fellow at the University of Southern Denmark. Studies have repeatedly linked high stress of high levels of stress-related cortisol to preterm births, extremely small newborns, and postpartum depression in mothers. At the same time, Dr. Dreyer explains, it increases during a healthy pregnancy and is good for fetal development. In preemies, cortisol is used to help mature the organs like the lungs, brain, and heart. Dr. Dreyer is a lead co-author of a remarkable new study presented in May at the annual European Congress of Endocrinology, which adds yet another dimension to the cortisol paradox. Researchers found that pregnant mothers who were anxious during their last trimester and thus secreted lots of cortisol gave birth to babies who became excellent listeners and talkers as toddlers. The more cortisol circulating in the mother's bloodstream late in pregnancy, the more advanced the toddler's understanding of words, and the more words they said between one and three years of age. The researchers drew their data from the Odense Child Cohort Study, which began with 2,500 healthy pregnant women living in the Danish city of Odense from 2010 to 2012. After dropouts, 1,093 children remained in the study. To study the developmental effects of prenatal cortisol, blood samples were collected from the mothers during pregnancy. Researchers monitored the children in utero and examined them every two months after they were born, as well as taking samples of their blood and hair. When the children were between the ages of one and three, Every three months, the parents completed a standardized language survey, the MacArthur Bates Communicative Developmental Inventory, which required them to tick off which words their toddlers understood or said from a list. According to this new study, the more cortisol produced by a pregnant mother during her third trimester, the more advanced her toddler's language abilities. The findings suggest that prenatal cortisol may be a bigger player in human development than previously thought, but there's still much to untangle, including the role of sex differences. The researchers found that boys whose pregnant mothers secreted more last trimester cortisol produced more words, while girls exposed to greater cortisol understood more words. This may be connected to the fact that pregnant women carrying girls generally secrete more cortisol than pregnant women carrying boys. On average, girls' language skills tend to be more advanced than boys in all populations, and cortisol may give us a clue as to why that is. And though parental education was measured in the study, IQ was not, so intelligence in both parents and children's may be key. One thing is for sure, as in all good stories, the protagonist maternal cortisol is neither all good nor all bad. Everything depends on the context. And now, Lawrence Krauss, a scientist's sexuality shouldn't matter. 
The Survey of Earned Doctorates is an annual census of new postgraduate research degrees. The National Science Foundation, a federal agency, collects data on academic discipline, sex, race, ethnicity, debt burden, disability, and citizenship. The results are used by government, universities, and industry to track the demographics of women and minorities in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. The sex and race data, the latter has been collected since 1975, was initially used in efforts to overcome barriers to women and minorities in academia. Those barriers have largely disappeared, yet quotas and preferential hiring have persisted. After such a concerted effort, demographic disparities are less likely to point to systemic biases in academia than to underlying societal factors. That's especially true when it comes to disparities of sex. Women earn a majority of post-baccalaureate degrees over all STEM disciplines in the United States. Since female undergraduates outnumber male ones by about three to two, this trend is likely to continue. Further, a recent large-scale study found that previous claims about sex bias in academic science were overblown. Tenure-track women and men in STEM receive comparable grant fundings, journal acceptances, and recommendation letters, and women have an edge in hiring. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court is expected to issue a decision soon curtailing or abolishing the use of racial preferences in university admissions. Amid all this, the NSF appears determined to focus even more intently on identity politics. A pilot project was announced recently to track sexual orientation and gender identity. In addition to being asked about their sex, now qualified as the sex assigned at birth, they will be asked if they currently describe themselves as male, female, transgender, or a different term, whether they consider themselves a gender minority, a sexual minority, and LGBT+, and whether they accept one of the dizzying lists of labels, non-binary, gender non-conforming, gender fluid, gender queer, gay, lesbian, bisexual, queer, or another orientation. The list of reasons why this is a bad idea is almost as long. For one, Asking about sexual preferences is a violation of privacy. Will the NSF next be asking how many sexual partners each degree recipient had during graduate school in case promiscuous students are underrepresented? Such personal matters are irrelevant to science and essentially invisible. In my 40 years in academia, I have worked with all sorts of colleagues and students. Many were highly eccentric, but that didn't matter if they were good scientists. As one colleague put it, you are teaching a chemistry or physics course. Your lectures describe concepts and present equations. Suppose a magnet is moving relative to a loop of wire. You barely know any of your students. You give tests and grade them. You have no idea nor care about the sexual orientation of any of your students. What career barriers are there? Identity divisions make the world more divisive, not less. 
Some of my colleagues and students have been gay. Unless they made a point of discussing it, it wasn't important. If someone publishes a report claiming that gays are underrepresented in STEM, will diversity offices require that job candidates add information about their sexual preferences to applications as they now require them to pledge to re- promote racial diversity and describe past activities that demonstrate such a commitment? Asking respondents if they're transgender, gender non-conforming, non-binary, gender fluid, or gender queer is patently ridiculous. These are subjective categories, unobservable by others unless the person in question makes it a point to label himself publicly. Most scientists, like ordinary people, couldn't even define most of these terms let alone use them as a basis for discrimination. What's the purpose of all this? Nature magazine paraphrases a statement from the NSF's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, Charles Barber. Collecting these data will help the NSF and other agencies to analyze employers' policies and procedures for addressing unintended barriers to employment, advancement, and inclusion. The magazine then quotes Mr. Barber, This gives us the opportunity to create more opportunities and broaden participation to yield equitable outcomes for the LGBTQIA community and others. Does that mean quotas? If so, how would one even go about determining the correct proportion of queer or genderqueer scientists? The percentage of the population that espouses these ideals is so small that any data the NSF gathers will be statistically useless. Australia's National Medical and Health Research Council recently announced plans to award half of its research grants for researchers at the mid-career and senior level to women and non-binary applicants. That sounds like a loophole. Men could get special treatment by declaring themselves non-binary. If the NFS is going to ask doctoral candidates about sexual orientation or gender identification, why not ask them about other private matters, such as religion or politics? Those would likely yield demographically skewed results as well. Atheists and Jews are surely overrepresented among scientists, conservative and evangelical Christians underrepresented. I wonder what the DEI officers would make of that. By pandering to the loudest new minorities so that DEI bureaucrats can expand their definitions of inclusion, the NSF is erecting yet another barrier to scientific collegiality and integrity. And now Han Yu's Knees are our body's weakest link. The ability to move around on two legs, known as bipedalism, is a defining feature of modern humans. Yes, various other things make us human. A big brain, dexterous hands, language, material, culture. But bipedalism is a turning point in human evolution. Just why it came about is debated, but experts generally agree that it gave our ancestors an evolutionary edge, helping them survive in a primitive world. 
Yet becoming bipeds also doomed humans to a pair of knees that is one of the weakest links in our body. Anatomically speaking, the human knee suffers from a rather precarious design, anthropologist Owen Lovejoy has written. The knee is a hinge joint, working on the same principle as the hinges that attach a door to its frame while allowing it to swing forward or backward. In a similar fashion, the knee connects the thigh bone or femur to the shin bone or tibia. The end of the thigh bone has two round knobs called femoral condyles, while the end of the shin bone has two relatively flat sections called the plateau. The condyles fit into the plateau to create the hinge, while ligaments, tendons, and connective tissues secure it in place so you can swing your lower leg. But the human knee moves in ways that a door hinge couldn't dream of. During dynamic activities, it exhibits six kinds of movement. It can swing forward and backward, rotate left and right, and rock a little from side to side. This multi-angle mobility allows us to move sideways as well as in a straight line and also to turn, pivot, cut, and make other movements needed in sports. This dynamic mobility comes at a cost, however. The knee is flexible because it is fundamentally unstable. Just a few pieces of rigid, ill-fitting bone bound up by rope-like soft tissues. The bigger ropes, known as the major ligaments, break easily because they take the brunt of any stress to the knee. Ligaments are stressy, fibrous bands of tissue that connect bone to bone. There are four major ligaments in the knee. The most easily injured is the anterior cruciate ligament, ACL, which connects the thigh bone and shin bone diagonally and is situated toward the front of the knee. There are 100,000 to 200,000 ACL injuries in the United States every year. Some occur as a result of external blows to the knee, but about 70% are caused by an unfortunate movement such as a sudden change in direction, rapid deceleration, jumping, or pivoting. Such movements are common in sports such as skiing, soccer, and basketball. Another commonly injured ligament is the medial collateral ligament, MCL, which connects the thigh bone and shin bone vertically on the inner side of the knee. When there is a blow to the outer side of the knee while a foot is planted, the MCL can rupture. Such injuries are common among football linemen who are often hit on the side of their knees. Some 60% of skiing knee injuries also involve the MCL. When braking and stopping, skiers will bend their knees, push their heels out, and turn the tips of the skis in, creating stress on the MCL. Then there is the meniscus, the crescent-shaped cartilage that sits between the thigh bone and shin bone to absorb shock and reduce stress. Meniscus tears happen as a result of putting downward force on the knee while rotating it, as when we turn, cut, or pivot at speed. In the United States, about 1 million meniscus surgeries are performed every year. Yours truly has contributed to that statistic. People who dodge traumatic injuries can suffer overuse injuries due to repetitive movements. 
The most common overuse injuries is runner's knee, formerly known as patellofemoral pain syndrome, PFPS, that is, pain at the front of the knee around the kneecap. It happens because running puts repetitive stress on the knee and causes irritation under the kneecap. PFPS can also affect people who jump, squat, or cycle as part of their exercise routines. Even non-sports activities can cause knee troubles. Frequent kneeling and squatting increase the risk of osteoarthritis in the knee. These postures put the knee in deep flexion and wear off articular cartilage, the protective tissue that covers the end of the thigh bone and shin bone. With this cartilage gone, osteoarthritis and the accompanying pain and stiffness set in. Of course, physical activities have abundant health benefits, but they expose the human knee as the evolutionary compromise that it is. Standing and walking upright freed our hands to do wonderful things, but it also means that the entire weight of our upper body and whatever we happen to carry rests on our knees. When we run, the force on our lower limbs increases to several times our body weight. If we then proceed to do something fancy like rapidly changing directions or going up and down hills, the lower limbs lose their ability to absorb shock, further endangering the knees. Women, in particular, may have drawn the short straw in knee evolution. Studies from a variety of sports and play levels show that females are far more likely to have knee injuries and surgeries than males. For example, in high school basketball, girls are 44% more likely than boys to suffer knee injuries, 165% more likely to have knee surgeries, and 315% more likely to have ACL surgeries. In collegiate soccer, female players are 138% more likely than males to sustain ACL injuries, and 79% more likely to have meniscal tears. Among national championship-level volleyball players, women are 300% more likely to suffer knee ligament injuries. Some blame these statistics on the fact that women have a wider pelvis, evolved for delivering the large brain babies that our ancestors had become. With a wider pelvis, the quad muscles exert a stronger sideways pull on the knee, which can interfere with the smooth movement of the kneecap and cause excessive rotation of the lower leg. Some researchers also suspect that estrogen, the female sex hormone, weakens women's ACLs by reducing production of type 1 collagen, which provides the ligament's mechanical strength. Once again, what ensures the reproductive success of the human species may render women's knees more prone to injury. Perhaps thousands or millions of years from now, if humans continue to exist, our knees will evolve into something stronger and better. Until then, we would all do well to look after this weak link in our bodies. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.